Happy New Year. 2010. Can you believe it? Let's uh, begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. Thank you for a new year and bringing us through 2009. As we look forward, we, we ask that you will use us this year to, to be more effective in taking the truth, the gospel, the kingdom to this world, that we can uh, be part of your plan to bring out about an end, uh, that all the world may be lightened with your glory, and you can come to receive us to be with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the title this week is The Fruit of the Spirit is Joy. And the first question for the class, what is joy? Happiness. No. Joy is state of being. It's a decision you make to be joyous. A decision to be joyous. We, you know, I looked up in the dictionary and got a dictionary definition of joy, and you can see whether this fits with what we're talking about or not. The dictionary says, joy, the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying, keen pleasure, elation. Well, as you think about that, look at our memory text. Somebody read our memory text, which is John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus, now, now, when you read that, what's the first thing that came to your mind? You read this thing. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. What, what, what crosses your mind? That he wants us to be joyful. So, number one, Jesus wants us to be joyful. Anything else? He's just about He's about to die. Okay, what else? Does it cross your mind what things? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Well, what things? I mean, is he connecting the things he's spoken with the transfer of joy? Yes? So would you want to know what the things are? What things did he speak? Let's, let's take a review. And, this, and this, this conversation where he's having, he's saying, these things I've spoken to you, it was in the upper room prior to his crucifixion. And that conversation actually starts all the way back in chapter 13, verse 1. And in chapter 13, verse 1, as we go through it, let's see what things Jesus spoke to them and see if understanding what he spoke brings you joy. First thing he does, it says in chapter 13, all power is given to Jesus is what it says in chapter 13. All power has been given to me. Does that bring you joy to know Jesus has been given all power? Where's the source of joy in knowing that Jesus has all power? He's safe with the power. He's safe with the power. He knows how to use it for our own good. He knows how to use it for our good. Yeah, and what's the very next thing in that chapter 13, immediately after he speaks the words, all power has been given to me, what does Jesus do? Notice that. He gets up and he washes the feet of his disciples. All power has been given to me. And by the way, now that I have all power, you guys uh, better uh, go get bucket over and wash my feet. No. Now that I have all power, here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to serve you. Does that bring you joy? Why does that bring you joy? Security and trust. Which reduces what? Fear. fear. Oh, is it joyful to be without fear? Have you ever been in, in fear and had something relieve you of the fear? Was there joy in that relief? Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? What have we been in fear of? What have we been in fear of that, that this would relieve us of? Fear of the unknown? 
suffering. At whose hand? Mm. Do you think they had any fear of God? Well, keep that in mind as we go through the rest of what he tells them. Does it tell us something about God, his character, how God operates, that Jesus, when he has all power, gets up, uses his power to go and wash their feet? Does that give us insight into God and his character and methods? Does that bring us joy to realize God is like that? Does it tell us something about the impact that other-centered living, altruism, giving, that service we render to others, does it tell us anything about the impact that has on us? Is Christ giving us a witness that if you want joy, you minister, you serve? Is the, remember the, the context of our, of our question, John 15. I tell these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. So he is telling us stuff that will bring us joy. Will we get joy as we serve others? Jesus then, next thing in the, if you read this whole conversation, we're looking at the things he told them that is to bring joy. The very next thing he does is he predicts his betrayal. He predicts that one of them in the room will betray him. How does that prediction bring you joy? If you're one of the apostles, one of you here will betray me. Joy. I tell you these things so that your joy may be full. I've told you this. Does it bring you joy to, to know? Nothing surprises God. Okay, did you hear that? God is not surprised. We can't do stuff that he doesn't know ahead of time we're going to do. He already knows. And link that to what happened next. After Jesus predicted his betrayal, meaning that Jesus knew. Jesus knew who would betray him, yeah? How did Jesus treat Judas. What did Jesus do to Judas? Whoa, wait a minute. You're going to betray me, so let me serve you. Does that bring you joy to realize? Have you ever betrayed Jesus? He'll wash your feet as well. Does that bring you joy? He's told us these things so that our joy may be full. So he not only gets down and washes Jesus, Judas' feet... But what did he do in regard to Judas' reputation with the rest of the disciples? Protected. She said protected it. Did the rest of the disciples know Judas was a betrayer at that point? Did Jesus expose him? In fact, when Judas left, what does the scripture say the rest of the disciples thought he was going to do? Take care of the poor. Go out and take care of the poor. Because he had the money, they thought he was going to go out and do something to minister to the poor. What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about God? That he knows every one of your defects. But yet, he won't use that information to harm you, to hurt you, to exploit you, to embarrass you. Does that bring you joy to know that? Does it help you trust a God like that? Does that bring you joy? Jesus tells them then that he is going to be glorified excuse me, that he is going to glorify his father and thereby be glorified. I'm going, to go, I'm going to glorify my father and the father and thereby I am going to be glorified. How does that bring you joy? What did he mean he was going to glorify his father? How was he going to glorify his father? 
Ah, what is God's glory? His character. The two people in, in perfect harmony said his character. Does everybody agree that God's glory is his character? You know the story of the, uh, where the prophecy in the Old Testament about how the, the second temple that the Jewish people built would be more glorious than the first temple? And, most, uh, and yet when they went to build it, those, who, those Jewish leaders who were alive when Solomon's temple was destroyed and saw the foundations laid for the new temple began to grieve and mourn and wail because it was so puny and so small compared to Solomon's temple. Yet the prophecy says it's going to be more glorious than the first. And how do, how do Bible scholars in, interpret that then? Christ was there. Jesus walked physically in the second temple. Yet, wait... When the first temple, Solomon's, was dedicated, the priests couldn't enter that day. Why? Anybody know? The glory of the Lord came into the place. And so we have two temples, a large one built by Solomon. And the glory of the Lord entered the place and the physical presence of his glory was manifested there such that the priests could not enter. Yet the scriptures say that the second smaller one would be more glorious Yet there was no big, fiery, dazzling light, light show there. What was, what was shown in the second temple? Jesus' character. God's character of humble self-sacrifice and surrender that we read about in Philippians. He who did not think with quality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant. God's true character of love was revealed at the second temple. So he glorifies God. By revealing the truth of God's character in his surrender to the cross, and thereby himself is glorified as the source of all love. And then he goes, a new command I give you to love one another. How is this command connected to joy? He's telling us these things so that our joy might be full. How is this command to love one another connected to joy? Joy is the, love is the essence of life. That's the only thing that allows for life. And if you're going to live, that's pretty joyful. Okay, so getting back in harmony with the design template for life helps bring us peace and harmony. And, and in your life, and I've, I've got this written somewhere else, I think, but uh, in your life, when have you experienced the most joy? When somebody has given something to you or done something for you, or when you've had the opportunity to give or do something for someone else who really needed it? Which brought you more joy? Have you ever heard the old saying, it is better to give than to... Is it true? Is there actual joy in that? So this is his, what is love? Love is about getting all that we can. No, love is about giving all that we can give. In fact, there's a song by Michael W. Smith that uh, says, love isn't love until you give it away. If you're not giving, it's not love. No matter what you call it. And then the next thing in our dialogue here where Christ is telling them these things so they may have full joy, he says, the next thing is that Jesus predicts Peter's betrayal. So he predicts Peter's betrayal. How does the prediction of Peter's betrayal bring us joy? The end of the story. The end of the story? But that story hadn't happened yet. He's telling us in 15, I told you these things that your joy might be full. Peter... I've told you you're going to betray me by morning so that you might have full joy. Imagine being that conversation. Imagine Jesus just looking you in the eye and saying, Paul, you're going to deny me three times. Have full joy. Be joyful. I've told you this, you might have full joy. 
how do you see that as being a source of joy? He did that for Peter's good. He did that so, I mean, if Peter had gone into that blind, if Peter hadn't had that experience, if he hadn't experienced the love that Jesus showed him in anticipation of that. Well, I like it. You see, he told Peter that he would betray him, but again, just like the question with Judas, how did he then treat Peter? He didn't say, I know what you're going to do too. Yeah, he washed his feet. He said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Did he cast him off? Did he treat him with, with disgust and derision? Or were there nothing but consummate love and adoration for him? Yes. Um, it's just like telling your children, no matter what you do, I'm still going to love you. <laughs> when they're wanting to be, you know, resistant. Does it tell us anything about God's attitude towards us when we have shortcomings and make mistakes? Yes. Does that bring you joy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But both Judas and Peter looked at Jesus when he was on trial. And Judas chose to go out and kill himself, and Peter chose to love him more. Yes, and what does that tell us? They both had the same love of Jesus. She said that both Peter and Judas had the same treatment from Jesus. Jesus looked at them the same, spoke to them the same, washed their feet, loved them both. One of them went out and hung himself. The other one went out and repented. What made the difference? Did Jesus treat them differently? No. It's how they responded to the truth. This is an insight, actually, of why some are saved in the end and some are lost. That you can understand. Do you think Judas had peace of heart prior to his hanging? No, he's obviously being tormented. At what source? Was God inflicting torment upon him? Or had truth shown into his mind when he saw Jesus look at him? And he wouldn't repent. And that truth was tormenting to him as he saw what he had done and who he was. And he couldn't live with it. This is insight as to why the wicked are tormented in the end when they meet God face to face. I was just going to say, don't you think you would increase their confidence? Yes. In what in the, in the word of Jesus? You know, he said that this is going to happen. They had no clue it was going to happen. Then it happens, and then it makes them feel like they can trust even more. Right, and it doesn't take him by surprise. He knew. Yeah, I love that. And then Jesus promises, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will, I will come and receive you. So he's promising to go prepare a place and, and come to receive us. Source of joy? Are you, do you hold to that hope still today? Does it bring us joy to, to remember and contemplate that reality? I think so. Jesus then tells us that he is the way to the Father because he and the Father are one. And anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Now, does that bring you joy? Yes. And in fact, I would suggest that that is the core message that he wanted them to get as the source of joy. Because every other thing that he was doing brings us joy as we recognize, wait a minute, when Jesus was on his knees washing the feet of his betrayer, who were we to see doing that? That's God. Did Judas need an intercessor between him and Jesus to keep him safe from Jesus? No. Unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily, the scripture said. 
Christ, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. Hebrews 1, Christ is the exact representation of the Father. When you see Jesus doing these things, are you thinking, that's the Father. That is an insight into the heart and mind of God himself. Does that bring you joy? It should. It should. It totally changed my life. When that light went on in my head, it was like, whoa, all these other things that I'd been thinking and I'd been taught suddenly don't fit. Like Jesus needed to die to plead to his father on our behalf, to persuade his father. Why would he need to do, do that if Jesus is actually representing the father's very thoughts? That didn't make sense to me. And suddenly the whole world started to change. He then tells them that they may ask, and we've been told we may ask anything in Christ's name, and he will do it for us. What does it mean to ask in Christ's name? Well, we know. Uh, whatever we ask, as long as we finish in the end, in Jesus' name, amen. We associate with Christ's name with his character. If we pray in the character of God, we don't answer that. She says, we associate his name, as in Hebrew culture, name reflects character. And if we pray with his character, well, that's very insightful. In Desire of Ages, page 668, this is what it says. But to pray in, the na- in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character manifest his spirit and work his works. The Savior's promise is given on condition. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. He saves men not in sin, but from sin. Wow. Do you hear that promise? Do you all believe that promise? Do you want to be saved in sin? No. Or do you want to be saved from sin? I tell you, that's, you may say, well, what's just semantics? It's not semantics. Two entirely different gospels being preached. One is a gospel of legal payment that saves you in sin. Your legal payment's been paid, all sins, past, present, and future. Doesn't matter how many more you commit, as long as you accept the payment, those payments have been made, you're saved in sin. Or there's a gospel that wants to save you from sin, deliver you from its power, transform you, heal you, recreate you, regenerate you. That you have characterized Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Two different gospels. Jesus promised then to send his Holy Spirit and not leave them as orphans and through his Spirit give them his peace. He's telling us these things that our joy may be complete. Do you get joy knowing that the Holy Spirit has been promised to you? What is the Holy Spirit's job? Teach us the things of Jesus. To enlighten our minds and teach us. Anything else? Comfort us in times of of stress and and pain. What else? Guide us, absolutely. What is the Holy Spirit's job in the salvation process? Take what is Christ and give it to us. Take what is Christ and give it to us. I like that. Christ himself said, it is expedient that I go, because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. And when he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He is going to take what is mine and make it known to you. So he becomes the applier, the actualizer of Christ's victory over sin in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the connecting link that makes real in our minds and hearts all that Christ achieved in his life. As some say, without the Holy Spirit's working in our life, what Christ did at the cross will have no effect upon us. Is that not true? Yes, so yes, it's a great promise. This is is the application, the source of of regeneration for us uh, through Christ's victory. Then it says, Jesus tells them the parable of the vine and the branches. How does the parable communicate our foundation of joy? The vine and the branches. Remember the parable? They connected to Christ. Does a branch that is connected to the vine have to work really hard to produce fruit? 
does a branch that's connected to the vine get pruned? Oh, yes. If the branch had feelings, what would it feel like to get pruned? Hmm. If we're branches, do we get pruned? Yes. Who does the pruning? There's a metaphor of this in the Old Testament sanctuary service. In the Old Testament sanctuary service, every morning and evening, the high priest would do something. Trim the wicks. Trim the wicks on the lamp. Trim the wicks. Only the high priest would trim the wicks on the lamp. And why do they trim wicks on lamps? So they burn brightly. Yes. Jesus said, you are a light unto the world. We are to be lights of his. Who is to be working in our hearts? Our heavenly high priest. He is to be trimming the wick of our heart and mind so that we are more, more, burn more brightly for him and represent more truth for him. This is great joy. And then he tells us if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. Any thoughts on commandment obeying and, and joy? We'll come back to that one later so we can kind of just brush past that one for the moment. Somebody read the last paragraph for us that starts the Sabbath lesson. It says, joy is a delight. Joy is a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. This type of joy stems from an awareness of God's presence in one's life, allowing us to rise above circumstances and focus on the goodness and the love of God. At the core of Christian joy is the fact that God has acted and is acting to save those who trust Him. I, I don't disagree with that if you have a right knowledge of God. It says the joy is sent, it comes from an awareness of God. How about if your awareness of God is that God is punishing, critical, arbitrary, watching to take away any happiness, a God who takes mommies from their children in car crashes, or who looks the other way when children are being abused. If that is your awareness of God, does that bring you joy? No, just an awareness of God doesn't bring joy. It's the awareness of the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, there are many, many people in this world who believe in God that are not joyful. Did the Pharisees in Christ's day believe in God? Did you see them as, as representatives of joy? No, they weren't joyful at all. Because why? Because their God concept was, was oppressive and destructive. Could the primary message that Jesus was telling them in John 15... I've told you these things that you might have my joy and your joy might be full. Could the primary thing be, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. Would that be the ultimate root to the joy? As you look through that whole uh, conversation. Sunday's, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Many believers allow themselves to be victimized by their circumstances and consequently vacillate between spiritual highs and lows. For them to rejoice seems unreasonable, even impossible. That is why the command is to rejoice. Thoughts about that paragraph? You've just had a tragedy in your life. Family member is sick. Someone's died. You've just lost your job. Your, your house has been foreclosed. But some tragedy, some, some painful life experience. Don't, and, you, and you're counseling with your pastor. And he says, the Bible commands you to rejoice. Rejoice. Does that help? You have a child who hates spinach. And you put it down before them and say, eat that spinach and enjoy it. <laughs> Can you command enjoyment or joy? No. So uh, I'm not, to this group of people here that are vacillating between spiritual highs and lows, these people haven't yet come to know the fullness of God. Does it work simply to say, well, we have a command to rejoice? True joy can never be rejoiced. Because 
She says true joy is deep and underneath the tragedies. Can it be commanded? No. No. You didn't finish the paragraph, Kim. I didn't. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your suffering, but in the Lord. That's where our joy is to be in the Lord, not in what's happening to us. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. When I think of rejoice, re is a prefix that means again, to do again. And so rejoice is to have joy again. In the Lord. Yeah. So how about if instead of giving a command, if, if we just change it slightly to a prescription? Somebody who's struggling with difficult times, we give a prescription. And would that be different than a command? You see, if we offer the, a remedy, an intervention, a treatment for the suffering and the, and the faint of heart, and, and as with all remedies and treatments, we explain the basis for it, the reasons why to do it, the underpinnings and rationale behind it, and in this case, why God is worthy of our praise and, and, and why we should rejoice in him, does such a prescription provide more than a simple command? Retains the choice. Yeah. Yeah, it gives us understanding, enlightens the mind. The lesson, of course, indicates this. If you read the next couple, couple of paragraphs, it indicates this is exactly what is to happen. Is it talks about, on the second paragraph, that our spiritual stability is related to knowing God. So our rejoicing isn't simply a blind command, but it's coming from the knowledge and experience we have in Him. And it goes on to, to further expound on this when it talks about, let us examine the reasons for rejoicing. Oh, now if we have reasons for doing it, it's not a simple command anymore, is it? And the lesson invites us to do that. So, and it actually gives us, and invites us to do it in relation to Psalms 139. It says, look at Psalms 139 and, and evaluate the reasons for rejoicing. Let's break it down. First four verses. Reasons for rejoicing. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Tell me, how does that bring you joy? No, he's always right there with us. In light of how, well, at this point, David didn't know about Judas and Peter, but in light of the way God reacted with those people, it gives me joy. That he can know everything about me and still love me and be kind to me. That he can know everything about us and still love us and be kind. Linda? I think of the demoniac on the beach. Even though he was behaving in certain ways and making <laughs> destructive decisions that had led him to be almost totally taken over by people, Christ perceived in the very depths of him that there was something that wanted and would receive his uh, ability to change him and allow that to happen. I like it. Isn't there intimacy between you and Christy so Christy knows what you're going to say before you say it? So isn't that an intimacy that we have with God so he knows us so well and we know him so well that we're comfortable with Oh, I love where you're going with that. That's so beautiful. And in fact, what has sin done to the human heart? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Sin has filled our hearts with fear. And I think in this room right now, all of us sharing a common faith, yet how much fear permeates the hearts in this room? Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of being misunderstood, fear of being laughed at, fear of not being loved, fear of not being accepted, fear of saying something stupid and nobody understanding. How much fear permeates, permeates our hearts? How much joy is there to come into a relationship as you're suggesting? in which you are fully and totally and completely to the most intimate aspect of the microfibers of your being known and still loved. 
actually known better than you know yourself. Known better than you know yourself. And this, of course, is what we are to be doing here in our class and in our church. When it talks about, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that we are, in James, it says to confess our sins one to another. The purpose Because we all have made mistakes. We've all made shortcomings. And in our own judgment, in our own echo of a backness of our mind, we condemn ourselves. No one could love you if they knew you did that. No one could accept you if they knew you did that. No one could possibly want to be around you if they knew you did that. And we have this condemnation of our own guilt that weighs upon us. And as we confess to one another and we experience love, we experience grace. We see in the eye that we're still accepted and valued and cherished. It's healing. It's redemptive. And we are to be the hands and feet of God to love each other in real ways. The beauty of guilt is that it brings you to repentance. Some guilt brings to repentance if it's an appropriate conviction of wrongdoing. But there's a lot of guilt that is not bringing to repentance, that is destructive and leads to isolation. And so... I think what what is being said here is this intimacy that we have this joy to know that God, as you said, knows everything about us and and we are still the apple of his eye. We're still the joy of his heart. We're still the, 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 the one that he loves and pursues to redeem back to him again. And then all the stories of scripture, like Gomer, uh, the prostitute, how the prophet kept going after her over and over again. That's how God is coming after us over and over again. Yes? So then the question is, how do we maintain that intimacy with God day by day, hour by hour, instead of just on Sabbath or here in class? How do we keep that intimacy going? Great question. And let's see if we don't get to that here in a few minutes. That's great. Yes, absolutely. How do we keep it going? Are you glad to know, sitting in this room right now, that God knows everything about you. If you are cheating, he knows. If you are harboring resentment, he knows. If you're unkind, rude, gossiping, hard-hearted, addicted to something, he knows. If you are in an adulterous relationship, he knows. He knows before you do any of it. Does that bring you joy? Why or why not? Does God's attitude toward you, knowing all this, how do you see his attitude toward you? What is the attitude of a doctor toward a patient who is severely ill and having lots of symptoms, fever, cough, vomiting, diarrhea? What is the attitude of that doctor towards the patient? Compassion. Compassion. Desire to intervene and heal. When God looks at us in our sin, how does he see us? As a doctor sees his patient. How does a parent see a child who is feverish and sick? What a wicked and stubborn child always having fevers. Oh. Or does the parent's heart go out to heal? Even if the patient is non-compliant? Yes. And as much as you mentioned talking about it as a, uh, as a prescription and, and now mentioning uh, the great physician. And as much as we would want to go see a doctor that didn't know anything about the human body, when we go to Christ, he knows everything about us. God knows everything about us. And that way we can, we can rejoice in the fact that because he knows so much about us, he knows our inner workings. He knows how we respond to different things. And when he tells us to rejoice as a prescription, it's because he knows that that rejoicing will cause our, our lives to be better. It's not because of anything that's happening to us outside, but by rejoicing through that, it's going to cause our lives to be better in Him. I like it. I like it. Yeah, He knows. Isn't it, isn't it good to know when you're sick, you go to a physician who you have confidence knows what the problem is 
and knows what the solution is. See, he knows everything. So we can have joy knowing that we're sick. But like David, we can pray, search me, O Lord. See the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. In fact, it's in this very, uh, this very psalm, I believe. We keep going. All right, next. He says, you hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I rise on the wings of the do- if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become, uh, become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What joy do you get from that? I think there's a lot of uh, comfort in that because many times when we're misunderstood, um, when we try to do the right thing and nobody else understands whatever, there's great comfort there. Because we don't And God knows our heart, doesn't he? Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Nothing can be hidden from him. Time, space are irrelevant to him. Past, present, and future are alike laid out before him. Nowhere we can go where he can't see us and guide us and heal us and restore us. I like it. And then this next passage. Starting verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made... Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What joy does that give you? Are you joy-filled knowing you didn't evolve from slime? (laughs) We were designed and created in the image of God. Does that fill you with joy to know who you are? Rather than uh, something that just kind of evolved over the forces of nature with no set purpose, design, structure, just kind of, oh, random things happen, and boop, there you popped out one day, a big glob of slime. That doesn't fill me with joy. But knowing that the the Creator of God designed us and, and made us with capabilities and attributes that are like His, in His image, that is wonderful. That passage is actually a description of the uncontaminated, unadulterated. Yeah, joy, yeah, to know these things. But as the devil used Scripture and tried to to, uh, confuse Christ, um, how can this passage be used to destroy joy and bring discouragement? People that are born with illnesses that God designed them. I have patience. Why did God want me to have schizophrenia? Why did God want my child to have autism? Why did my child, why did God decide that my child should have spinal bifida or congenital heart defects? Why did God choose to make my child that way? Or me that way? Do we believe that this passage means that God from his throne in heaven creates each person in this room as we are? I see some head shaking no. I see some confused looks. If it means that God uses his divine power to create each one of us as as individuals, which is often taught, then we have discouragement because then when you have a mental health problem, when you have a a biological defect in your physiology, well, then God decided that he wanted you to have that problem and he gave it to you. 
And then if it was God's will, what business do surgeons have doing anything with cleft palates and, and, and congenital heart defects? I mean, after all, God knit them together with that defect. Now, they're going against the will of God to fix that then, aren't they? He says God didn't cause it. Of course he didn't. Do you understand this passage is traditionally taught to mean that he did? When a man rapes a woman and she gets pregnant, is God knitting? Is God creating? This is what we often teach. If kids do have the various defects of various kinds, does that mean that on that particular day God was distracted and having a, a, a bad knitting day? Sounds very much like Elijah's criticism of the Baal at Mount Carmel. Where is he? Is he off sleeping somewhere? Is he getting distracted? Yeah. God also gave his creative powers to us as human beings to create children. Like it. Like it. Exactly right. She is so right on it. She says, in the Garden of Eden, God gave them an ability when he created them. Be fruitful and multiply. Have beings in your image. God gave to mankind the capacity to create beings in our image. And just as he gave Samson strength, we all agree he gave Samson strength, right? Did he control Samson's use of it? Did he give Solomon wisdom? Did he control Solomon's use of it? Did he give us procreative capacities? Does he control our use of it? No. This is a gift given by God. We can abuse it, or we can use it in harmony with his will. And when we abuse it, things can happen. Which do you think actually is more powerful? God and his divine power, or a bottle of alcohol? What do you think? I'm going with God. How about you? Okay. So then, if God is using his divine power to create each one of us, knitting us together in a womb, and a woman is an alcoholic drinking that bottle of uh, vodka every day, why is that kid born with fetal alcohol syndrome? God should be more powerful than alcohol, right? Because he's not. That's why. His power isn't going up against alcohol. He gave us an ability to carry out and govern these capacities for good or for ill. How is God then knitting together? How do we understand this? Through his, de- through his design template for humanity and through his ordained laws of health and physics that govern these things. God is involved through it all in that way. But it's not a direct act from heaven like he did Adam and Eve in Eden. The Bible says that God had directly involved in three human lives. Adam, Eve, and Jesus. And all three of them, when, when they became human alive, were... Sinless. <laughs> Sinless. So if ultimately we say God knitted me together and made me from a divine act from heaven, I didn't extend, as the scriptures say, through the, the genes of my parents all the way back to Adam. If, if that didn't happen, then I can look God in the face and say, you made Adam sinless and gave him a chance to develop a character that was in harmony with yours without sin. Why did you make me sinful? And we put at God's doorstep the source of sin. So these, these texts can't mean that. So it's important we understand what they do mean, that we can have joy to know God did create us, but where did God create humanity? In Eden, in Adam. And this is what the scripture said, all of us were in Adam when God created Adam. We're all extensions of Adam's life. 
All right, going on 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would, be, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is an offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What joy does that bring you? Well, when we pray, you know, my neighbor is so irritating. They've been doing all this stuff. I can't stand. Lord bless the missionaries in Africa. And is this how we pray? Or do we go and say, Lord, I am so mad at those people. Why don't you send a lightning bolt and just, just burn them up tonight? But Lord, if that's not quite right, would you search my heart and lead me in a better way? I mean, if you are harboring that kind of animosity and hatred for somebody in your heart, do you think God already knows it? It's already said in the scripture. He already knows it. So if we don't communicate it to him, what are we doing? We're lying. And denying. And denying. It's in the open communication that we say, okay, God, this is how I'm feeling. That really makes me mad. I really can't stand it. I just want to go smack my neighbor in the nose. But, Lord, I'm aware that that might not be the best thing. And if not, could you lead me in a better way? It doesn't look like Jesus. I'm aware of that. I feel it, but I know it doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus. It might not be the best way. I saw some questions on some places when you said God is not more... It came out sounding like God is not more powerful than alcohol. I saw some really... Oh, did I say God is not more powerful than alcohol? It sounded that way, kind of, but I know that you did not mean it that way. If we say God is actually from heaven using divine power to create us the way we are, then the conclusion would be that his power isn't as strong as alcohol for those babies born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Because he should have been stronger than alcohol and that baby should have been born healthy. If we say that he's actually doing it. But I don't say that. I say that he gave us an ability, and we abuse that ability and cause those consequences, and he isn't divinely acting from heaven to create a new life. Yes? about the story of John 9? As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Mm-hmm. Teacher, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Neither. It's done for the glory of God. It was because was it because of his sins or his parents' sin? Jesus answered, "He was born blind, so the power of God could be seen in him. All of us must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent me." So, does that mean that God created him blind? Was Jesus saying that in that text? Is that what that Jesus was saying? God created him blind, or was he saying that defects? of birth happened because the world groans under the weight of sin. As Paul says in Romans, all nature groans under the weight of sin. That things are not working the way God designed them to work because sin is contaminating and disrupting God's design. And God's glory will be manifested as his power restores and recreates and heals those who are marred by sin. But even if he didn't heal his blindness, his life he lives, if he depended on God, through his blindness, would reveal the love of God. Ultimately, that's what's going to be demonstrated. That God, as it says in the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 3, when Satan stands as the accuser and the high priest stands there, 
um, and it says, take off the filthy garments, remember? Put on the, the, the new garments, which represent take away his sin, it says. It says, look, is this not a branch plucked from the fire? What does that mean, branch plucked from the fire? Well, um, just to go a little bit more on that text, it's not saying that God assigned him. It's not saying you assigned him, but rather I take that as more our choices are for sin. That's assigned us. Well, I agree with you. Multiple points there. One, that birth defects are not always due to the sin of the parent or the child. There's lots of them, but they can be. He wasn't saying they couldn't be. But not every birth defect is due to such behavior. Babies born around Chernobyl were not born with defects for either their sin or their parents. Exactly. We've got to go over to Tuesday's lesson. Second paragraph, there's no greater joy than the joy of being obedient to the will of God. It may seem to some that the emphasis on obedience to the law of God simply serves to exacerbate the already guilty conscience. The fact is that obedience to the will of God is liberating. Remember, it was disobedience that brought war to heaven and sin and death to this planet. All human pain and suffering are the result of humans stepping outside of the will of God. It will be, then, obedience to the will of God through faith that helps restore joy. So, does all obedience to God's will bring joy? Yes? No? No? Yes. Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not really obey. When the requirements of God are accounted as a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from a love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This leads us to do right because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. Can we obey behaviorally, confirmation, working to keep obedience and have no joy? Yes. Look at the Jews in Christ's day. And these guys were rigidly obedient. No joy. Why? Because it wasn't coming from the heart. It was coming from confirmation, a requirement, a system of rules that they had to keep. And then, Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in the love of God. It is mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such would break out in disobedience. Not all obedience brings joy. Only heart obedience brings joy. Yes? Traveling with my kids in the car, I make them wear a seatbelt. They don't like it. They're confined. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I had an accident, and all three of them, from the eight-year-old to the thirteen-year-old, go, "Yeah, I'd like to make this wear a seatbelt." And what changed? They found out why. Ah, understanding. It was no longer just do it because I say so. There was a reason behind it, and suddenly their heart is now invested in obeying. I bet you don't tell them put the seatbelt on anymore, do you? Not anymore. You see that? There is the key to genuine obedience. Obedience that God wants will never come as blind obedience. The obedience that God wants is an enlightened understanding. Graham Maxwell talks an intelligent cooperation. He talks about part of the root of the word obedience comes from a willing being willing to listen. A humble willingness to listen. Yeah. My voice he needs be willing to listen to my voice and then I can reveal truth to you. That doesn't mean we always understand every command God gives at the time we begin to obey. There are times in life when we wear our seat down, but we don't understand. She says there are times that we, we can't always understand everything. But we trust God because we know we have confidence in 
Can we understand through evidence and and experience that God is trustworthy? Yes. Even though we may not understand that particular. So some particular direction we may not understand the reasons for yet, but do we understand God is trustworthy? Or should our trust in God be without evidence of his trustworthiness? Just because it said so. No. Yeah. All right. So, and then the last paragraph says, however clear the Bible is that we are not saved by works, it is also clear that works are an inseparable aspect of what it means to have salvation. Works reveal to the universe the reality of our salvation, the reality of our commitment to God. Now, is that all works do? Are works involved in our salvation at all? They're a reflection. Uh, Okay, one idea is they're a reflection or an evidence of our salvation. Do works play any contributory role in our salvation? No. That's a trick question. Can you be saved without works? Yes. Okay. All right. These are good. These are good questions. This tension that we're we're raising in this room has been struggled throughout Christianity for the history of the Christian Church. Let's let's. Yes, we are going to solve it. Actually. Um, Desire of Ages, page thirty-five says, the principle that man can save himself by his works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. It has now become the principle of the Jewish religion. Satan had implanted this principle. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. Do we all agree with that? The idea that we can save ourselves by our own works is at the principle of every heathen religion. Okay? So we're, we're clear on that. We can't save ourselves by our own works. Is that the same thing as saying our works have no role in our salvation? No. no. It's not the same, quite the same thing, is it? All right, let's read some Bible passages. Tell me what you think these mean. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, if you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you and will uh, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not by yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then Galatians 6, 7 and 8. God uh, says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap the st- destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Who's doing the sowing? The one who sows reaps destruction. The one who sows to the carnal nature reaps destruction. Is God doing that sowing? No. Hmm. Interesting. And then Colossians 3, 1 through 13. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now listen to this. Put to death, therefore. Who is the implied noun in that sentence? You. You. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in your life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put it on a new self, which is being renewed in the image and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Creator. Um, Therefore, as God's holy people, dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Hmm. 
You're not as comfortable with that one, are you? You put off these things. You put these things to death. You put on your new clothes. Hmm. Well, how do we put all this together? Here's a, a text out of uh, Lift Him Up, page 193. It says, While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and do according to his pleasure, they were working out their own salvation. Herein is revealed the outworking of the divine principle of cooperation, without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power. And without human effort, divine effort is with many to no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. Or, Mind, Character, Personality, second volume, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor to the divine ener- with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, his building. Man is to work with the faculties God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this one I really like. Our high calling, page 310. Get this one. There are two, two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with divine agencies. Two things at work. Your cooperation with divine agencies. Divine influences and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a labor together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. He does, he does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought in connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. Ye are laborers together with God. Wow, isn't that cool? That's exciting. And then in Desire of Ages, page 466, she says, In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. The expulsion of sin is an act of the soul itself. True, we have no power to free ourselves from Satan's control, but when we desire to be set free from sin, and in our great need cry out for a power out of and above ourselves, the powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit, and they obey the dictates of the will and fulfilling the will of God. Do you see the cooperation there? We have to choose. And so I have patients who pray, Lord, I've got this cigarette smoking problem, please set me free, but never choose to set the cigarettes down. They can't be free if they don't choose to quit lighting up. Does that make sense? There has to, but when they choose to quit lighting up, they have divine power to walk that new life. And then she says this, remember your character is being daguerreotyped. Anybody know what a daguerreotype is? A daguerreotype is an 1820s, 1830s photographic technique. Yeah, so we could say your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? What picture is being placed in the book of heaven as your character is being photographed? It's so cool. So, um, I know we're running out of time, so let's bring this to conclusion. That's how I put all these pieces together. Um, When we are one to trust, we open the heart and surrender to his will. And the Spirit infuses us, and we partake of the divine nature, as it says, So, 
This is more than just a mere reflection, however. It is a cooperation in which we participate to experience the salvation which Christ alone achieved. In other words, Christ achieved the cure for sin alone by himself in his own journey, and no human work or human effort could provide anything. Christ achieved it alone in his own human work. However, the remedy or cure for sin that he provided is applied to each individual believer's life in cooperation with divine agencies. Does that sound right? If you don't cooperate with divine agencies, the application of what Christ has done does not happen in your heart and mind. But what Christ accomplished, none of us, no amount of work, can achieve. So think about this dying of a terminal illness, and a particular doctor works out a remedy and a cure. Say an antibiotic that's developed. You have done nothing to contribute to its development. You have nothing to contribute to its production. It is offered to you free, and you take that. Your job would be to take it. Now, does that remedy and cure begin doing something inside you you can't do for yourself? Is there a cooperative effort going on between you and the doctor now and the work that's going on inside you? Yes. This is what it's talking about. We have a cooperative role, an active, energetic, purposeful, willful, intentional role to play. And as we understand this and cooperate intentionally, willfully, purposely with divine agencies, we experience greater and greater development and freedom rather than this passive thing that says, my payment was paid, I accepted the legal payment of my books, I'm just waiting for the rapture now. You Which, see that in your practice more than a person who does. And I see that, yes. Because the, you can never, I'm a teacher, you can never work with another human being without that other person's cooperation. And so we're back to that place we started the class. Is God and Jesus Christ wanting to deliver us in sin or deliver us? From sin. And he's wanting our hearts and minds to be filled with love, to be transformed with truth, and to intelligently cooperate with him that we develop characters different than the self-centered, fear-based, insecure characters that we would develop without his involvement in our lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you value us and that you love us so much that you do leave us free and that you have given us the responsibility of cooperating with you and you value our ingenuity, our intelligence our, our, our freedom to think and to choose and Lord right now we reach our hearts and minds to you we ask that you will pour out your spirit enlightening, exposing the errors in our thinking, the false beliefs that we've held may the truth come in and burn those things out of our minds and belief systems and we choose your methods of love transform our desires, our motives that we will love you with a pure love and we will give ourselves to bless others around Around us that the light of your glory may shine in this world and we can see you soon. Amen. Amen.